We're going to continue on in uh, our, our, the introduction to our look at um, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you remember last time, we <clears throat> began looking and laying some of the foundation of what we were looking at, or about things to look at, things important to consider as we do uh, get into this um, this book that is, I don't know if, if it's one of the most neglected, if the most neglected, but maybe one of the most neglected in the canon, uh, maybe the Minor Prophets uh, would be right up there with it, but we don't want to do that. Um, uh, and I'll re- remind you again, I've titled this series through Ecclesiastes as uh, Life Over the Sun. Life Over the Sun. Last time we looked at um, uh, Ecclesiastes approaching this book, approaching the wisdom literature, um, and we looked at covenant and canon, if you'll recall, uh, where, Ecclesi- where Ecclesiastes is in the canon, right? The, it's in the, the, the writings section um, of the Bible. It deals with covenant life, with life in the land. Um, Ecclesiastes describes this from a different perspective. And it's helpful to read Ecclesiastes together with Proverbs, together with the rest of the wisdom literature, because you get um, a full-orbed um, you know, a diet of what's going on there. And so it's very helpful to do that. And so we're going to look this morning at uh, the, the, other, the rest of these points by way of introduction. But before we do that, let's read again the bookends of Ecclesiastes. And so I'll read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, and then we'll read 12, chapter 12, 8 to 14. But first, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. <clears throat> the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around it goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has, been all, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no resemblance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. And then turn, if you will, to the last chapter in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, this evening. And uh, I'll be reading uh, verses 8 to 14. Uh, Verses 8 to 14. Ecclesiastes 12, uh, starting verse 8. As the letter closes, as the book closes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly uh, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, 
All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. So as I mentioned, we looked at covenants, right, uh, and canon, right, the, 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 the book of Ecclesiastes as it relates to um, God's uh, collected canon that he gave us, where it is in that, and how this relates to covenants, covenant life, uh, covenant in the, uh, life in the land. And the second thing we're going to look at, the first thing this evening, um, are some of the challenges that go along with wisdom literature, some of the challenges that we can um, come up against when we look at particularly Ecclesiastes, but the wisdom literature in general, some things that can make it challenging for us to understand um, a book like Ecclesiastes. In the first one of these things, um, these challenges, um, things that we can error is that in, is uh, um, misreading genres, right? You've heard of um, maybe, I think it's D.A. Carson that pronounces the word very funny. He says, Jean. It's a French way of saying it, I think, but we say genre. And this is just what kind of book it is, what kind of literature it is. Um, and we make a mistake um, when we don't know where we are. One of my professors used to always say, when you're looking at a text, you have to first know where you are. Right? And so where are we in uh, what epoch in, in redemptive history, but also what, what, is the, uh, what kind of genre is it that we're reading? Um, because indeed, there are challenges to understanding uh, the literature, but particularly if we misread genres. For instance, um, law and imperatives, right? Those seem fairly easy to understand and to identify. We hear them and we understand them. There's little ambiguity with law and imperatives. Um, wisdom literature can be, uh, wisdom can be more difficult um, to the extent that sometimes there are seemingly, there are conflicts in some, some of the wisdom literature. You'll think of, you'll remember a verse like, I think it's Proverbs 26, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but where um, in the same verse it says, answer a fool according to his folly, don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? And so how does, what does that mean? How does that work, right? This is different than the genre of law. Um, there are ambiguities as well. There's things that seemingly conflict, there's, some, uh, there's ambiguities, but the Bible is full, it's quite aware of the reality of the ambiguities of life, right? Our human experience um, there's ambiguities within it. And so from a human perspective, uh, that's certainly the case, right? We have amb- there's ambiguities. There's things that are ambiguous to us um, from this human perspective, or as Ecclesiastes says, life under the, life under the sun. Uh, most of us don't like ambiguities. Uh, it's hard to deal with ambiguities very often. Uh, but how many Christians wander through the gray areas of life uh, wishing they could find clear counsel in some of these matters. Uh, being aware of the genre that we're in, wisdom literature, can help, help us. It, it can be a way through uh, in our understanding. Um, so that's first, being aware of uh, genre. The second mistake that we can make is mistaking observations with promises. Mistaking observations with promises. Uh, many, are, many of the statements in Ecclesiastes, as we'll see as we begin to get into the text of the, of the book, um, they're observations, right? And so when we mistake or we misread observations as promises, that leads to bad theology, right? can lead to bad theology. Um, for instance, um, you're familiar with the proverb that says, raise up a child in the way he should go, 
and he will not depart from it, right? Uh, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Uh, this is a proverb. It's not a promise, because many a child have been raised up in the culture and admonition of the Lord, the way that they should go and departed, right? And so uh, we have to understand what's going on. We have to understand where we are. We have to understand what we're reading. This is an observation. This isn't um, a promise as a biblical promise is, uh, are given elsewhere, right? There's multiple meanings, right? It means when you raise up a child well, they'll likely be a good child. If you raise them up poorly, they'll likely be a bad child. We are to rear our children, in the rightly, biblically, in the culture of the Lord, modeling godliness for them and piety for them. But ultimately, a child is going to be righteous and godly only by God's grace in Christ as it is applied to them by the Holy Spirit. Um, life is not like a sausage maker. It's not, like, it's not formulaic where you do everything and you put the, the product in and at the end you have a sausage. Right? It's not, it's not that way with children. <clears throat> we can do everything right. And children still wander, wander, walk away into spiritual darkness. Uh, and these situations call, call for ultimate wisdom from the mind of Christ. So we can't misread proverbs or observations from wisdom literature, uh, especially like Ecclesiastes, as promises. Um, these are, this is a challenge when reading Ecclesiastes we need to be aware of. Um, so those are the first two. And then the third thing that... Um, that, that can lead to problems, a challenge when reading Ecclesiastes is um, having a moralistic use of wisdom literature. Moralistic use of wisdom literature. Right? We've looked at mis- misreading genres, making, mistaking observations for promises, and then thirdly, moralistic use of wisdom literature. Uh, biblical wisdom literature is not, or they're not just principles like, like a Christianized Aesop's fables. Right? You guys all know Aesop's fables. Um, the boy who cried wolf to teach a moral lesson, or uh, the goose that laid the golden eggs. Um, that is not what wisdom literature is doing, right? It is, the, is it the purpose of any scripture to make us increasingly moral with no reference to Christ, right? Is that the, the, the purpose of any scripture? No, it's not. Not at all. Moral people who die in rejection of Christ still go to hell. So morality is not the, the summa bonum, it's not the telos, it's not the end of what we're doing. And therein lies the travesty of the social gospel or other moralistic teaching that has displaced the gospel in many churches. Um, have we read the Bible rightly? I'll pose another question. When we come from it with morals, but without the conviction of our need for Christ or the assurance of the gospel, No. We've not read it rightly. We've not read it rightly. Can our understanding of Ecclesiastes, uh, third question, be the same as it is for perhaps our Jewish neighbors or our Jewish friends uh, in the synagogues in town? It cannot be. It cannot be. Um, necessarily must be di- different. Wisdom literature rightly understood offers another outlook on Christ. Another outlook on Christ. Um, it's a necessary part of a healthy spiritual diet. Because it tells us that in the midst of life's ambiguities, we must lean not on our own understanding, Proverbs, right? But upon Christ, right? And how do these things make sense? It's, they only make sense in Christ. Um, so covenant challenges. And then the third thing, uh, point, the second point for tonight, uh, third on the overall, is Kohelet, right? I introduced you last week. If you didn't, weren't familiar with it, that's the name of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew, Kohelet. And... Um, 
that's what we're going to look at in this, under this heading is who is the preacher? Who is Kohelet? Uh, the word Kohelet um, is a Hebrew word. It's Ecclesiastes in Latin and in Greek. It's uh, anglicized uh, the Greek. And it's related to the word, um, the called out ones, the assembly, right? Ecclesia, you'll recognize that, the called out ones, the church, the assembly, those who are called out. Well, in Hebrew, the word kahal is related, kohelet, um, of the caller, right? And so that's what this comes to, this etymology of the preacher or the teacher. Um, who is the preacher? Uh, is it Solomon? I say yes. <laughs> uh, there's dispute, right? We, we can't be 100% sure. Um, like the book of Hebrews, right? We're not, we don't know exactly for certain who the author was, and that's okay. Um, but it makes sense that it, was, that it was Solomon, and I think that's the best, uh, the best answer to that. But when was the book written? Right? When was Kohelet? When was Ecclesiastes? Again, this isn't overly important, um, only keeping in mind the, uh, you know, some of the, the modern um, liberal scholarship, quote-unquote, uh, that would radically change the dating. We say it's probably around, conser- the conservative view, is the historic view, is that it's uh, after the 10th century B.C., um, but what is it? Why is what's going on in, in Ecclesiastes? What is Kohelet telling us? What is the preacher saying? Uh, the author describes the world as he sees it under the common curse. Right? He's describing it as he sees it under the common cursed, uh, curse. Um, everything is not under our control. Everything is not under our power. There are things that we can't predict uh, that happen to us. Right? We don't have the key to unlock every mystery in our lives. Uh, Kohelet is working within the wisdom tradition, right? It fits with our pilgrim theology, right? It's another reason it connects with us so much when we really look at what's being said there. It connects, it fits in with our pilgrim theology. We are sojourners, we are pilgrims on the way through a land that is not our own. The common curse is a reality, right? The elect and the reprobate, reprobate both face a fallen world. We're living in a world that is under the... Uh, Uh, the ravages of the common curse, yet the curse is only but for a time, right? And that's, you know, one of the glory points of every time we look at this. It is only for a time. Ecclesiastes is concerned with our present lot in this common cursed world, right? It's important for us to understand that. That is what Ecclesiastes, that's what Kohelet is talking about. He's concerned with, with, with our lot as it is now in this common cursed world. Initially, he sees very little relief in this world. He sees very little relief in this cursed world. But he doesn't give up in despair, right? He doesn't give up uh, in desperation. There is a time for everything, he says, right? There is a time for everything. Everything is in God's hand. And we see that in the epilogue that we read uh, in chapter 12. We don't, um, it shows us that life is always lived in tension, Right? Yet we don't give up in despair in this tension. The prophets, as we look at those, that genre of literature, as we read the prophets, they talk a lot about an eschatological age, a coming age, a final, ultimate age. Kohelet focuses primarily on the present, very little on the future. Prophets seek to resolve tension, talk about things that will happen and how things will work out. Ecclesiastes doesn't seek to do so. Uh, and that can be refreshing for us, right? It can be refreshing to hear God's word given to us 
as we read it, because we don't live in a tensionless world, right? We live in a world, world with much tension, much tension. We're not yet in glory. God's plan yet unfolds. And so the ultimate ability to live faithfully in this tension is found where? In the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. That's where we can live faithfully in this tension. In this epilogue that we read, it doesn't necessarily resolve the tension of the book. That's why it's good to read these things together, to read Proverbs with Ecclesiastes. Um, We shouldn't want to get rid of the tension, right? We live in the tension, in faith, right? With our feet grounded in the truth, living for someone, Jesus Christ. Uh, There are some false teachings and there are some evangelicals that want to get rid of all the tension, right? But there's tension, right? We're in a pilgrim land. Uh, And so the gospel is in Ecclesiastes. It's there in seed form. And I hope to see that as we work our way through it. But to fear Yahweh is to make an unconditional submission to his will. Right? To fear the Lord. Fear God, even in times of tension. That's kind of the end. That's, that's, that's what the epilogue is about. Um, and so it leaves the tension, but it gives you the solution. Right? And that's what we're called to do, brothers and sisters, is to rely and to lean on our Lord who is sovereign. And so that's Kohelet. We've seen challenges. We've seen uh, uh, Covenant challenges, Kohelet, and then this last point in the introduction um, is the Christ-centeredness of Kohelet, as, off, as Ecclesiastes, as strange as that may seem to many people's ears, because we have a Christ-centered Bible, all of it, um, all of it. And so turn, if you would, to John chapter 5, we're going to look at a passage from John 5, and then um, the end of the Gospel of Luke, but First John 5. Where Jesus, our Savior from his own mouth, tells us, he tells us um, this very thing. Right? There are those who refute this, there are those who argue vigorously against um, this truth that our scripture is Christ-centered. But I'll trust the words of our Lord before I trust um, those who argue against him. Um, and so just John chapter 5, verse 39, where Jesus says this. says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Right? It is they who bear witness. Well, who's the they? What's the reference? The scriptures that they're searching. They bear witness of me, Jesus says. <clears throat> Christ grant, the Christ-centered Bible. Um, and then go to Luke 24. I'm confident that, that these aren't new to you or that these would be familiar to you. Um, if not from elsewhere, from me, I, I mention these um, often. Uh, Luke 24, starting at verse 25. This is that wonderful passage on the way, on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says this, uh, 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Right? So he starts unfolding the Bible, right? the Old Testament, showing them of him what was going to happen, what needed to happen. And then go down to, in those two classifications there too, notice it says, um, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Right? There's two of the three categories that we see in scriptures. And this is just a summation of the whole thing. But if we drop down to 44 and 45, we have them all mentioned. 
then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Right? And so there you have it. It's a Christ-centered Bible. All of this book, all of this story, all of this history is about, it leads to, it's the fulfillment, it pointed to, it foreshadowed Jesus, Jesus Christ. Even the wisdom literature, even Ecclesiastes. And that's a glorious thing and it's a glorious encouragement when we're reading and trying to understand our Bibles. Right? There's, there's a point to it. It's just not nebulous facts, nebulous axioms. It's about someone. Um, and after all, what we read about, what do we read about wisdom in the New Testament? Right? What do we read about wisdom? What is the New Testament's proclamation about wisdom? Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Christ, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and, 20 and 30. Uh, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Right, so a proper understanding of the wisdom literature, especially Ecclesiastes, requires a Christ-centered understanding, a Christ-centered reading, a Christ-centered hermeneutic, how we view scriptures, our approach to the scriptures. We must ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand in light of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, in our union with him, this side of the cross, what he's told us about all of his word, and what it means. And this is what I hope we'll see. It's what I hope to do as we work through uh, the words of Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, Kohelet. Uh, wisdom literature finds its fulfillment in Christ, the incarnate wisdom of God. And so we must read it through the lens of the crucified, risen Messiah. May we grow by this old book that indeed speaks so poignantly uh, to our very time. And may we indeed find Christ there. May we see the honest addressing in it of life's frustrations and pains and struggles and fears and conflicts. And may we ever more so see that except from life, for life over the sun, right, the vertical life, life in the one without whom nothing makes sense. May we see that that life in Christ is the only life that holds any meaning at all. It is a life that is full of ultimate meaning, life in Christ our Savior. And when we forget this, there's an encouragement as well. As we forget this, and as we fail to acknowledge this, and as we pretend or look for meaning in any other thing, we can flee again to Christ, the meaning maker. We can flee again to this one. We are united to Christ, your life hidden in him. And in him, part of what God is doing in the world. And you will bear fruit in keeping with that union as he strengthens us, as he grows us by his Holy Spirit through word and sacrament. And so let us indeed know and grow and acknowledge and rely on him for our moment by moment and wonderfully meaningful life, all to the praise of his glory.